Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I hope you're having a wonderful day. For me, the start to a great day is finding uplifting podcasts to help me with a better mindset each day. And I hope Open Your Eyes does that for you. There's just something empowering about getting your mind right before each day and week. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. And if you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend. Just use the share button on your podcast app and share it with a message like, I was thinking of you. I thought you might enjoy this podcast. And it just might be what they need to hear today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about taking back control in our life. Now, I don't know if you've been up close to a modern aircraft carrier, but I have. And these ships are incredible. They're massive. So much so that you wonder how they even float in the water. Aircraft carriers are some of the largest and most complex ships in the world. For example, the Nimitz-class aircraft carriers are a massive 1,092 feet long, 252 feet wide, and have a displacement of over 100,000 tons when fully loaded. The sheer size and complexity of these aircraft carriers make them a significant investment for any country that operates them. They require extensive maintenance and support to keep them operational. Currently, there are 43 aircraft carriers in the world owned by 13 countries. The United States has 11. China has two with another under construction. Russia has one. The UK, Italy, Japan, and Australia all have two. France, India, Spain, Thailand, Brazil, and South Korea all have one. A Nimitz carrier can carry 90 aircraft, including fighter jets like the F-A-18 Hornet and Super Hornet which are used for air-to-air combat and ground attack missions. The EA-18G Growler, which is used for electronic warfare, and support aircraft like the C-2 Greyhound, which is used to transport personnel and cargo. And if you're landing on a moving aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean at night, it is an incredible feat for any pilot. The ocean waves move the ship up and down, and the landing zone is incredibly short. The landing speed of a jet aircraft is typically about 140 to 170 miles per hour. When landing on the deck of a carrier, the pilot must line up the carrier on approach, deploy the landing gear, take into account the movement of the carrier, reduce the engine thrust, and flare the aircraft, which means pulling the nose up slightly in order to reduce the speed and rate of descent. The pilot aims to touch down at a specific point on the deck and then engage the aircraft's tail hook with one of the cables to bring the aircraft to a stop in a very short distance. The tail hook and cables allow jets to land that would otherwise need a long runway. But pilots do practice other landings that are intended to mimic harsh or emergency conditions. One such landing is called a Sierra Hotel break. This involves a fighter jet approaching a carrier from the rear. The jet is flying at 400 miles per hour, and to slow the aircraft rapidly, 
the pilot initiates a 360-degree turn before arriving at the carrier. And the G-forces in that circle turn slow the jet fast. At the end of the turn, the aircraft is slowed, and it is in line with the carrier and ready to make a quick landing. And if the landing is successful and executed perfectly, the pilot often uses the term Sierra Hotel. The S and the H of the Sierra Hotel in Navy terms stands for the S and H in S-H-I-T hot to indicate that the landing was a shoot hot or a perfect landing. Last year, jet fighters aboard the Carl Vinson aircraft carrier were on patrol in the South China Sea, and they were practicing landings. As one pilot came into approach, he attempted a Sierra Hotel landing, and he completed the 360-degree turn. It slowed his aircraft, but he neglected to go through his entire landing checklist. These quick and complicated landings push the pilots to think quickly. The pilot later explained that he didn't complete his landing checklist because he was overwhelmed by an abundance of tasks. The pilot lost situational awareness and assumed he was in automated mode when he was actually in manual mode. This meant the pilot thought the autopilot was on and would land the aircraft for him, but he was in manual mode, so the plane's nose didn't rise as it should before landing And despite the last-second power thrust by the pilot, the plane crashed on the deck of the carrier. It skidded down the length of the flight deck, the pilot ejected, and the plane veered over the left side of the carrier, falling into the South China Sea. Six Navy personnel, including the pilot, sustained injuries in the accident. The cost of the lost aircraft and damage to the carrier, $115 million. An expensive lesson for the pilot and for the U.S. Navy. But we, too, who attempt to pilot our own teams or families, learn expensive lessons as well. There are times in which we lose situational awareness, so to speak, and we can be overwhelmed. And this happens to us more often than we think. And when it does, we lose sight of what we're doing and where we're headed. Our sense of control in life can be interrupted by a number of things. Being overwhelmed by our circumstances, change, loss of purpose, anxiety, and more. And research on sense of control suggests that this plays a significant role in our well-being and mental health. Sense of control refers to an individual's belief in their ability to influence the outcomes of events in their lives. And these studies have shown that individuals with a high sense of control tend to have better mental health outcomes, including lower levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. They're also more likely to engage in health-promoting behaviors, such as regular exercise and healthy eating. On the other hand, individuals with low sense of control tend to experience more negative emotions, including feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and they're at a higher risk of developing mental health problems such as anxiety and depression. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist, neurologist, and Holocaust survivor, and he wrote one of the top 10 best-selling books of all time called Man's Search for Meaning, which you've probably read. Frankl was born in Vienna in 1905 and grew up in a middle-class Jewish family. He showed an early interest in psychology and went on to study medicine at the University of Vienna. 
He later became a neurologist and psychiatrist and worked at the Vienna Psychiatric Hospital. In 1942, Frankel and his family were sent to the Jewish ghettos, and later he was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. And despite the horrors he witnessed and experienced in the camps, Frankel maintained his sense of dignity and inner freedom. He observed the behavior of his fellow prisoners. He saw those who were overwhelmed by their circumstances were more apt to give up and give in. He observed that those who maintained a sense of control over their lives were more likely to survive. Even in the direst of circumstances, he found that people who held on to their sense of control were able to find meaning and purpose in their lives. Frankel says he's often been asked why he didn't try to escape after Germany invaded Austria. And he responds with the following story. Let me answer by recalling the following story. Shortly before the United States entered World War II, I received an invitation to come to the American consulate in Vienna to pick up my immigration visa. My old parents were overjoyed because they expected that I would soon be allowed to leave. I suddenly hesitated, however. The question beset me. Could I really afford to leave my parents alone to face their fate? To be sent sooner or later to a concentration camp or even to a so-called extermination camp? Where did my responsibility lie? Should I retreat to safe and fertile soil to pursue my occupation? Or should I concentrate on my duties as a child of my parents? I pondered the problem this way and that, but couldn't arrive at a solution. This was the type of dilemma that made one wish for a hint from heaven, as the phrase goes. It was then that I noticed a piece of marble lying on a table at my home. And when I asked my father about it, he explained that he had found it on the site where the National Socialists had burned down the largest Viennese synagogue. He had taken the piece home because it was a part of the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. One gilded Hebrew letter was engraved on the piece. My father explained that this letter stood for one of the commandments. Eagerly, I asked, which one is it? He answered, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land. At that moment, I decided to stay with my father and mother upon the land and to let the American visa lapse. Since then, some people have asked, how did Frankel endure the hardships of the concentration camps and how did he and only a few others survive. He responds by saying that it was his sense of meaning that he created, that he focused on helping others and learning all he could about the experience, thinking that someday he would use it to teach others. All the while, others gave up and gave in to their extreme deprivations. Frankel would later say, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms to choose, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So how did Frankel survive when others didn't? Perhaps it was that he still had control, control in how he would respond, and the others felt like all control had been taken from them. You know, in the modern day in which we live, we experience something similar. Often, given the same circumstances, some people are overwhelmed and others thrive. And in our own lives, we have the same thing happen. At times, we can handle our circumstances with grace or skill, 
And at other times, we can be overwhelmed by what's happening around us. Now, I like to think that I'm a person of faith, and I believe in the end, hard work and good thinking will prevail. But I feel sometimes that my schedule or other people or my habits have control of my day or circumstances. And this causes me to be overly anxious from time to time. Like the pilot flying the aircraft, this reduces my ability to think or react or be the kind of person I want to be. And I don't think I'm alone. Most of us can feel anxious about what's before us or what's been handed to us or how we need to change. And you can call it lack of control, being overwhelmed, having too daunting a challenge, being anxious or even discouraged. Whatever it is, none of us are immune or exempt from experiencing these things from time to time. And life's changes and our personal doubts and unmet expectations can have a tendency to bring on anxiety. So how do we then, in the everyday things, take back our sense of control, ease our stress and anxiety, and step up to the challenges and circumstances that we're facing? Well, the first thing is to open our eyes to see things as they really are. Frankel's sense of control in his environment came because he saw his experience and purpose in that experience differently than the other captives. In fact, I believe because of his choice to stay in Germany to be with his family, he chose in a way to be where he was. And the realization that he had a choice and made that choice was powerful to him. In speaking about Viktor Frankl, Dr. Stephen Covey said, the Nazi captors had more liberty, more options to choose from their environment. But Frankl had more freedom, more internal power to exercise his options. He became an inspiration to those around him, even to some of the guards. He helped others find meaning in their suffering and dignity in their prison existence. And in the midst of the most degrading circumstances imaginable, Frankl used the human endowment of self-awareness to discover a fundamental principle about the nature of man. Between stimulus and response, man has the freedom to choose. This is an extremely liberating thought. No matter what your circumstances, no matter how stuck you feel at the moment, you still have a choice. A choice of how you will respond to whatever comes your way. Let's say you're stuck in a habit, in a rut of thinking negatively about yourself or others or circumstances. And this loop of negative thinking keeps you from sleeping well, comes to your mind during the day when negative triggers occur or when you feel anxious. And once the thinking pattern starts, you feel even worse because you know that your thinking isn't reality, but you don't know how to change the thinking itself. But Dr. Covey is right. There is a space between stimulus, the start of our negative thinking loop, and our response. And if we could step back and look objectively at ourselves, we would see that when the stimulus comes, we can pause for a second and take a metaphorical step back and remind ourselves that we have the freedom and power to choose our response to the situation. So here's what I found works for me. When I feel anxious or face a habit of thinking negatively, I literally say to myself, step back. This pause in the space between stimulus and response gives me back a sense of control. 
And when you do this, you can think of the consequences, the impact of whatever you're going to say or do or think. Sometimes it helps to do this so you can choose a better, more positive response. And in that same pause, in that moment of choice, you can ask yourself, what will I gain? It's also okay to be a little selfish and think of your own good and think of the impact of your choices or your reaction on your own mental peace. Is it all really worth the trouble? Why disturb your mental peace for something that doesn't really matter or isn't even worth the trouble? You see, when you give in to circumstances, it means that something or someone else is in control. And when you choose, you are in control. So why let circumstances dictate how you feel or what you do? If someone or something has power over you or has the power to control you, your thoughts and your actions, it's because you have given them that power. Take it back. The moment you choose to take that power from people or circumstances is the moment they or your habit or circumstances lose power over you and you feel liberated. Years ago, author and professor Jim Collins coined the term Stockdale Paradox. The name refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest-ranking U.S. military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment, he lived out the war without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. And Collins talks of the meeting he had with Stockdale later in life. In advance of the meeting, he read the book that Stockdale had written. As he read through the pages, he found himself getting depressed. Because when he put himself in Stockdale's situation, it seemed so bleak. The uncertainty of whether he would ever be released and the brutality of his captors was just so daunting. And Collins wondered, how did Stockdale ever make it through his captivity? So when he met with Stockdale, they were walking along together and he asked him, how did you do it? I never lost faith in the end of the story, Stockdale said. I never doubted, not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Collins was taken back. Stockdale said he wouldn't trade the experience for what he learned from it. Well, Collins didn't say anything for many minutes. He said they walked along, Stockdale limping and arc swinging his stiff leg that had never fully recovered from repeated torture. Finally, after about 100 meters of silence, I asked, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, Stockdale said. The Optimus. The optimists? I don't understand, Collins said. The optimists were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they eventually died of a broken heart. Another long pause happened, and more walking. Then Stockdale said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Collins then shares the fact 
that he carries with him the image of Stockdale admonishing the optimists. We're not getting out by Christmas. Deal with it. Now, this is an incredibly useful tool to face the brutal facts. And you may think that facing the brutal facts is too hard to do, that it will be painful to face the facts that in the past, you've let others or things control you to an extent. But by facing the brutal facts, you get to decide how to react and get some clarity about what is real and what is not. For example, I know an incredibly talented woman. She's a gifted mother and doer, and she's had a job for a number of years that has given her purpose and association with people and made her feel like she was doing something worthwhile. And because of this role, people were coming to her all the time. And she was responding to emails and text messages and helping them and at the center of really fulfilling work. But recently, that job changed. And now the associations and other things are not coming at her. And she's left with more time in her day without as much apparent purpose. And this is causing her to ask, what should I be doing? And why am I not as good as other people at finding my purpose? And everyone else seems to be happy and fulfilled, but I'm struggling here. And she has choices of where to focus her time, but she isn't sure which is right. And this causes anxiety. And this anxiety builds on itself. And then she feels even worse about herself because she can't seem to control the feelings or anxiety of it all. And the truth is that when she faces the brutal facts, she will see that, yes, her role in this position is no longer there. And yes, the choices before her are endless and can be overwhelming. But the brutal fact is that we all must choose where we want to contribute to the world. And for most of us, those choices are never perfect. So it might not matter the choice, just the fact that she makes a choice that will enable her to take back control in her life. For example, let's say she chooses to volunteer her time at a local school. Is it ideal? No. Few things are ideal. But we get stuck waiting for ideal when really good is all around us. And when she makes that choice, though, she starts to regain control. And here's what I've learned. Most good choices have a serendipitous path. That means once on the path, if it is good, serendipitous or unexpected good things will come about. Perhaps she will meet new people, and these relationships will lead to new opportunities, and these things will teach her new things about herself, and soon she will be on a path with a sense of control and purpose. Another facet of facing the brutal facts is to accept the truth about how you arrived at the place you are with the tendencies you have and what you need to improve. Every choice we've made has a consequence, and we can't change that. It's a brutal fact. But we can change the consequences of our next choice. As C.S. Lewis said, there is no neutral ground. Each time you choose to act or not to act, moves you closer or further away from who you are meant to be. And your choice today, in this moment, can move you closer. And the next choice does the same. And soon you've chosen your way to greater freedom and control in your life. This fact, the realization of this fact, can help you and me take back control. You know, years ago, some talented authors taught me this simple principle. Imagine there are three men. Bob, John, and Ryan. 
And let's say they all listen to a podcast like this one. And they each hear the principle taught of getting up early and spending 15 minutes a day with uplifting books or podcasts and the benefits of 30 minutes of exercise each day. Bob is a really good guy, but he's going about his life and he hears the message, but chooses to stay on his current course. He exercises sometimes and listens to uplifting things now and then. John takes action. He does exactly what he heard, and he gets into the habit every day of getting up a bit early, feeding his mind, and exercising. Ryan not only doesn't take action, but he likes a beer or two or three each evening when he gets home from work, and he feels a bit depressed when he starts gaining weight, so he retreats to playing video games to forget a little bit about life, and this becomes a habit. Let's say these three men stay in their habits, and then let's go out five years and take a look at what's happened to each of these men. What's the result? Bob, what's happened to him? Well, yeah, he's remained about the same. John, well, John chose to act on what he heard. And on one of those mornings while he was listening to a podcast and exercising, he heard an idea. Get a notebook and write one thing a day in that notebook about why he loves his spouse. Well, he's a man of action, so he decided to do so. He got a small book and took a few minutes each day to write what he loves about his spouse in that notebook. When the year was over, he gave it to his wife. But the gift was not the book or what she read, but how he felt and how he changed about how he felt about her after the year. Additionally, he burned 250 calories during each half hour of exercise, and at the end of the time period, that was about 26 pounds he either lost or avoided gaining. What happened to Ryan? Well, he didn't exercise and he kept up his habit of drinking. At the end of five years, he was 30 pounds heavier. He was entrenched in his gaming habit and had diminished relationships and worse habits in his life as a result. Here's the point. If we face the facts, we can see that our choices can take us where we want or where we don't want. And this view, the view of the future, can give us the power to take control today. I've experienced this. Every choice we make adds a little bit to the person we want to become, and that feels empowering. You know, it occurs to me, few of us take time to reflect on who we are or what we want and what truly matters to us. But if we do this regularly, this awareness forms the foundation for making choices that are aligned with our authentic self and help us feel like we're in control. And when we recognize that we have the power to make choices and take action, we take control and find the capacity to stop blaming external circumstances for our situation. You know, I love the stories of people who lose incredible amounts of weight. It seems so daunting, and yet they do it anyway. Sometimes they just wake up one morning and say, I'm tired of being too heavy. I'm going to take action. And they do it. And I would like to take that mindset and determination and wrap it up in a pill and sell it. I would be a billionaire for sure. And while there are exceptions, this goes to show that life is a mind thing. When you make up your mind, you can do remarkable things, but it is the making up of the mind that is the challenge. Now, I've learned a useful tool that helps me with the making of my mind, and it goes like this. I don't have to do everything today, but I can do something today. Every good something I do today will help me do something better 
tomorrow. So if you're losing weight, you can do something good today. You can exercise. You can walk at night instead of snacks in front of the TV. You can do something good. And if you're trying to figure out what your purpose in life is, you can do something good today. You can volunteer, meet with someone who seems to have things figured out and get their advice or take any other type of action. You can do something good. Every good choice we make lets us say, I'm going to do my best and let the rest take care of itself. It gives us control. And then we begin to grow in our control. Years ago, I knew a man who lost 120 pounds. Do you know how he started? Well, he simply made the decision to take a walk each day. At first, he could only walk down the street. But he said to me, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And I asked him, could you walk twice a day? He said, I could. And he did. As he continued to walk, he started to gain strength. And he started to walk around the block twice a day. Then a mile, then two, and then five twice a day. Then he started riding his bike. Then he started swimming. And he ended up doing a triathlon. The funny thing is, he didn't start thinking about a triathlon. He only thought about walking. But the serendipitous path of taking back control in this simply daily choice led him to bigger and better things. Whatever the circumstances you are facing, you can overcome. You can take back control. Just remember, there is a space between stimulus and response. Pause there. Think of the best alternative in that pause. And this will give you a sense of control. Face the brutal facts. And when you do, you'll realize that they aren't all that brutal. They are fruitful. And they will lead you to good things. You didn't get into that habit in a day. And you won't get out of it in a day. But you can do something good today. You don't have to do everything. But you can do something good today. So choose that good thing and watch. You will rise to take back control and be who you know you can and should be. And you'll find what you're seeking when you take back control and choose a little better today. Most of all, thanks for being here. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.